amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Do you ever want to be arrest for the murder of William Lowe, who was the gas station attendant? You're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. It's been said that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. If there's one thing that my 40 years of life and countless hours of studying human behavior has taught me, it's that people rarely change. They may evolve or devolve, but at their core, the driving force behind a person's actions is typically only transformed in the event of a life-changing circumstance. It's for this very reason that the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit studies the past behaviors of suspects when investigating violent crimes. And it's also for this very reason that I want to begin today's episode by analyzing Jeff Durbin and Jeff Miller's behaviors and the crimes that we know they committed. The summer of 1991 armed robberies of a mobile station, an econo lodge, and a Clark station. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, listeners. It's a new year, and we got a lot of work to do. It's been a few weeks, so let me quickly recap what we've learned so far about the Jeffs. Miller and Durbin first came onto our radar when, in November of 1991, Jeff Miller's wife, Karen, reported to investigators that her husband had committed the armed robbery of the Clark Station at Linden and Empire, along with Jeff Durbin, and that he had confessed to her that he was the one who shot and killed Bill Little. Now, at the time I first reported this to you, We really didn't know how the police came to talk to Karen. Remember the lead sheet that led police to her was completely redacted. Well, thanks to the amazing Ray Wilson, we now know how all of this played out. In fact, I want to give a huge shout out to Ray. He's been listening along closely and firing off open records requests and FOIA requests for missing information in real time every time I'm missing any info. Most of what you're going to hear today came from Ray's hard work. For the life of me, I cannot figure out why this page would have been redacted. 
It contains very little info other than the impetus of how Karen Miller came to be interviewed by police on November 12, 1991. The day before, on the 11th, the following was written into a Leeds report. This is the page that was previously redacted. Quote, Karen Miller is in McLean County Jail. She stated her husband was the one who was doing the Clark Station armed robberies, and he shot the one murdered at the one on Empire Street. She passed this on through the jail staff. End quote. So this doesn't give us a whole lot of information, other than the fact that we now know exactly how Karen came to be interviewed by Crow. She wasn't questioned about Bill's murder or pressured like pretty much every other witness that testified against Jamie. She out of the blue, asked a jail guard to let the investigators know that her husband killed the attendant at the Clark Station on Empire. What's interesting about this is the fact that she didn't hold back any information. As we've seen with most of the witnesses in Jamie's case, the conversation usually began with, I have information, there's no details, and then the bartering begins. I'll tell you what I know if you make me a deal. But in Karen Miller's case, she didn't ask to speak to anyone. She didn't ask for a deal. She simply passed on the information that she knew her husband was the one who committed the armed robberies and that he had shot Bill. In fact, the end of the report states that the police were later contacted by Karen's attorney, who told Crow that he was not to speak to Karen from that point forward. The verbiage at the end of this report is important. It reads, quote, Crow talked with Karen's attorney, who stated that he would rather we not talk to Karen unless he was present, and if we wanted to talk to her in the future, that we could contact him. End quote. So, if Crow wants to talk to Karen again, he should contact her attorney. That's important because what it doesn't say is Karen's attorney would like to schedule an appointment for another interview when he is present, which is what you would expect to see if Karen was seeking some sort of deal. Instead, the attorney basically tells Crow to leave her alone. And what's even more interesting is the fact that we know Karen was at least telling the truth about the other armed robberies. So what are the odds that she was right about one half of the information that she provided and wrong about the other half? Continuing with our recap. After interviewing Karen, Detective Crow somehow obtained the information that Jeff Miller was only 5'6 and 125 pounds and has no scar on his chin, which doesn't match Gutierrez's description, but does match Martinez's. Nonetheless, Crow cleared Miller, and then it's crickets for two years. In June of 1993, while the whole city of Bloomington seemed to be gossiping about Jamie Snow's involvement in the murder, Someone called Crime Stoppers and reported that Jeff Durbin told him that he was involved in Bill Little's murder along with another man. And this was pretty much the end of Bloomington PD's interest in the Jeffs. But we began taking a closer look when I received a tip from someone claiming that he had went to Bloomington PD in May of 91 to report that he believed Jeff Durbin was the getaway driver in the Bill Little homicide. The tipster told me that Durbin, in the spring of 1991, used to brag that he was the best getaway driver in town, and that he would use a brown car and a taxi cab owned by Wiley Holt in armed robberies of gas stations around town. This of course caught my attention, because we had seen Wiley's name before. He was at the station just minutes before Bill was killed, and went into the police station that very night to report that he had seen a brown car with a black man driving it while he was there. A closer look at Wiley's statement revealed that he seemed to have found out details about the murder 
before anything had been released publicly. All of this seemed promising, but we have to do our due diligence. We have to do some investigating to determine if our tipster is credible. The first fact check was figuring out if Durbin really was driving a cab for Wiley Holt. The tipster told me that Jeff's dad, Frank, owned a construction business with Wiley. We did some digging and determined that that was true. But at first glance, it appeared that Wiley didn't own a cab business in 91. He had sold his in 1983. But after a little digging by a group of listeners, we figured out that Wiley did in fact own a cab company in March of 1991. Well, sort of. Wiley couldn't open another company in town due to a no-compete clause. But just a month before Bill's murder, Wiley's son opened American Cab Company, a company that was stated as being owned by Wiley himself in his 2000 obituary. The tipster also told me that Durbin had a tattoo on his face. And thanks to some great listener sleuthing, I can now confirm that that is also true. Below his left eye, Durbin has what I think are two teardrops tattooed. There's definitely something there, but I haven't seen a clear enough photo to know exactly what they are. But that's what they look like to me. So far, everything the anonymous caller has told me has proven to be true. But what I didn't expect is to find an even closer link between Durbin and Holt during the investigation. Another listener discovered that Wiley's son, Kelly, was actually married to Jeff Durbin's first cousin, Judy. But setting that aside for a moment, I want to get back to the last element of our tipster's statement. I mentioned in episode 21 that there was something I couldn't confirm. I was told that Durbin used to brag that he used the cab as a getaway car because he could, quote, cook the logbooks to make it look like he was on the other side of town during the robberies that he was involved in. The tipster also told me that Durbin had told him that the police did actually ask to see his logbooks that spring and conveniently, his mobile home, containing all of his records, burned to the ground before they could be turned over to police. Luckily, we have a ton of listeners who are great researchers. One of those is Amber Casey, who found the following two articles. This is from a news article on May 30th, 1991. Fire officials were still investigating a blaze last night that gutted a mobile home in Bloomington yesterday. The occupants of a mobile home at 98 Mobile Land Mobile Home Park were not at home about 7.30 p.m. when fire broke out inside an addition to the structure, according to Bloomington firefighters. Authorities last night were still searching the scene for clues to the fire's origin. According to reports, the owner of the mobile home was also unknown. One occupant that was identified, Jeff Durbin, could not be reached for comment. Firefighters said the mobile home, valued at about $4,000, was a loss. And then there's this article. Meanwhile, Bloomington fire officials are still investigating the cause of a fire that gutted a mobile home at 98 Mobile Land Mobile Home Park early Wednesday night. Damage was estimated at $4,000. There were no injuries. Fire investigator Dave Adelsberg said yesterday that the investigation so far indicates the fire was accidental but he needs to conduct a few more interviews before he can isolate the exact cause. The mobile home was owned and occupied by Rita Kesey and Jeff Durbin. It would appear that our tipster is batting a thousand. Everything he has told me has been investigated and has proven to be true. Then we have the little nugget that Jamie shared with us last month. 
After Jamie was convicted, Jeff Durbin sought him out and stopped by his cell and told Jamie, quote, I just wanted to see who they pinned that Clark Station murder on, end quote. At this point, what we have is a circumstantial case against the Jeffs. More than the state ever had on Jamie, but not enough to convince me that they are our guys. Miller's own wife gave him up to police and said that Durbin was his getaway driver. A tipster told me that Durbin was bragging about being a getaway driver in a cab, and another tipster told Crime Stoppers that Durbin told him that he was involved in the murder with another man. Jeff Miller accurately fits the description given to police by the only real eyewitness, Danny Martinez. And the owner of Durbin's cab, Wiley Holt, appears to have known about the murder before it was public knowledge. And then lastly, we have the exchange between Durbin and Jamie in prison. With all of that information being considered, both Jeff Durbin and Jeff Miller remain on my prime suspect list. So what I want to know next is, what was their M.O. in the three armed robberies that we know the dynamic duo committed? Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. Oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Thankfully, again, Ray Wilson has come to the rescue. Through a FOIA request, Ray was able to obtain several documents regarding the three armed robberies. In the police reports, we see that Jeff Durbin was arrested and charged with three counts of armed robbery on August 27, 1991. The arrest report lists the items that were in Durbin's possession at the time that he was taken into custody. Of note were a knife of some kind and a pair of black gloves. And since he was picked up during the dog days of summer... I find it unlikely that the gloves were there to keep his hands warm. Next, we have an incident report from the O'Connell Lodge Motel. The O'Connell Lodge on Brock Drive in Bloomington was robbed at about 9 p.m. on August 18th. The report states that witnesses told police that, quote, the suspect entered and demanded the money after displaying a handgun. Suspect fled on foot direction unknown. Now, this again, to reiterate, is an armed robbery that we know Durbin and Holt committed. Only one went inside the store, Miller, and Durbin was somewhere in the vicinity waiting in his taxi cab. And the report describes the suspect as a white male about 5'3 and slim, but Miller is actually about 5'6. A follow-up report gives us a little more detail on how Miller carried out the robbery. It reads as follows. Witness stated that the suspect entered the front door without her knowing. 
He displayed a blue, what she believed was a revolver. Suspect was wearing all blue, including his ski mask. Believed he was also wearing gloves, but unknown. Shoes unknown. Suspect jumped over the counter, had her open the cash drawer. He removed $162 in bills. Suspect then wanted her to open the safe, but she explained that she couldn't. Suspect left, direction of travel unknown, if he left in a car was also unknown. Witness believed that the suspect was a white male because his eyes around the openings of the ski mask appeared to be a dark tan white male. Witness also stated that the suspect was just shorter than she is, about five foot three, and slim. The gun looked like a revolver, but she doesn't know guns very well. She said it was longer than the one I carry, which is four inches. So in this incident, which occurred about four and a half months after Bill's murder, Miller was wearing a ski mask to hide his identity. He entered quietly and then jumped over the counter and pointed a revolver at the clerk. He made her open the register and tried to get her to open the safe before he fled the scene. Now let's move on to the Morris Avenue Clark Station robbery. The very next day after the Econolage job, Durbin and Miller hit the Clark Station at about 11.45 p.m. on August 19th. In this case, witnesses described the suspect as 5'8 and 170 pounds, with brown curly hair, blue eyes, and he was wearing a mask. The witness in this report states, quote, The subject displayed a handgun and took an undetermined amount of cash and cigarettes. Suspect fled on foot. End quote. The full report on this incident was written on the 20th, and it reads as follows. On August 19th, at approximately 11.45 p.m., I was dispatched to 1802 South Morris for an armed robbery. Upon my arrival, I spoke to the attendant, redacted, who stated that he was standing outside the business when a male subject wearing a rubber Halloween mask approached, redacted, and pulled a handgun that the victim and witness believed to be a 38 caliber handgun. The subject told, redacted, to, quote, get the fuck in the store, end quote. Witness stated he walked into the store with the subject following behind with the handgun pointed to his back. The subject told the witness to, quote, open the cash register. Subject then grabbed an undetermined amount of cash and cartons of cigarettes. Subject then fled on foot southbound on Morris. A witness stated that he was using the phone at the Clark Station when he observed the subject walking eastbound on Six Points Road. The witness stated that the subject was not wearing a mask at that time. He observed the subject walk up to the Clark Station, but did not observe the armed robbery. The witness then observed the suspect run past him with a rubber Halloween mask on. The subject was carrying a handgun and several cartons of cigarettes under his arm. He stated that the subject ran southbound on Morris across Veterans Parkway, almost getting hit by two vehicles. So the first thing we notice here is that Jeff Miller really isn't all that bright. On his way to rob the gas station, he walked right past someone at a payphone in the Clark Station parking lot without his mask on. He then proceeds to put on a Halloween mask and rob the store and run right past the same person on the phone, this time wearing his mask. But what we really learn from this is that Durbin was parked in the getaway cab at a remote location from the station. The report says that Miller ran down Morris Avenue and across Veterans Highway to the getaway car. Keep that in mind and remember that the person who killed Bill also fled on foot and headed toward an alley behind the station to get to his getaway car. Miller's trip to Durbin's getaway cab is actually how he ended up getting caught. 
Two days after this report, the manager of the Clark station contacted police. From the report. On Thursday, August 22nd, reporting officer was contacted by the manager of the Clark Oil, who stated that he had received information that the two girls that almost hit the robber on the night of the robbery as he ran across veterans knew him and that the suspect was Jeff Miller. The manager is trying to find out the girl's names for reporting officer and will contact reporting officer when he finds out. The next day, on the 23rd, an officer, Brucker, met with the man who was on the phone at the Clark station that night. He also knew the Jeffs. This report is a little longer, and it's posted on our website, but I'm just going to read to you some of it because I think it's relevant to Bill's murder. The witness knows the Jeffs as Big Jeff and Little Jeff, Big being Durbin and Little being Miller. From the report. On Friday, August 23rd, reporting officer interviewed Redacted, the witness in the above case. The following is a synopsis of that interview. Witness states that on the night of the armed robbery, August 19th, he was visiting his girlfriend on Cloberton Court and his girlfriend's cousin's boyfriend, Big Jeff, who works for the Ride Cab Company, came by in his cab with Little Jeff with him. Big Jeff left Little Jeff there while he went to talk with his girlfriend. Little Jeff had a backpack-type bag with him at this time. Big Jeff came back, and he and Little Jeff left in the cab. Approximately three hours later, the witness was sitting in his van in the Clark Station parking lot talking to his girlfriend on the phone. The witness was using the drive-up phone and was sitting in his van. The witness states that he noticed Big Jeff and Little Jeff come down veterans in the cab and turn onto Greenwood Avenue, and got down to the trailer court and turned around. The cab then came back and pulled into the driveway into the cemetery, and the cab sat there for a minute. The cab then went west on the frontage road in front of Laish Dairy. Approximately two minutes later, the witness saw the cab come down Six Points Road and do a U-turn on Six Points just short of Morris. The cab then went back down west on Six Points. It was then that witness noticed Little Jeff walking towards his van across Morris Avenue. Witness states that Little Jeff walked right in front of his van approximately six feet away, but didn't notice the witness in the van as he did not have the van running. One thing that we should note here is that by the time August rolled around, four months after Bill's murder, Durbin was no longer working for Wiley Holt. In March, he was driving for Wiley's American Cab Company. But a few months later, he's driving for the Ride Cab Company. Shortly after this interview, Detective Crow went to the Ride Cab Company to see if he could ID who exactly Big Jeff is. I'll read this excerpt from the report, and keep in mind that Martinez described the man leaving the scene of Bill's murder as a short, thin man wearing a dark-colored baseball hat. From the report. Reporting officers then went to the Ride Cab Company and spoke with, redacted, an employee of the ride who stated that the only Jeff that works there was Jeff Durbin, but his sister had called in and stated that Jeff would not be to work today as he was in Indiana. Reporting officer asked if he knew of a Jeff that Jeff Durbin ran around with. The witness stated he is a short guy that always wears a cap with a motorcycle insignia on it. The reports go on to track the investigation into the armed robberies. Miller was arrested and denied any involvement, but said that he was with Durbin riding around in his cab on the nights of these robberies. 
Then Durbin was interviewed and offered to provide cab logs showing that he was across town with fares at the time of the robberies, which is exactly what our tipster told us he would do. There's a transcript of an interview with Durbin on our website. This interview regards all three of the robberies he was arrested for, the Econo Lodge, the Clark Station, and the Mobile Station. If you read it, you'll see that as soon as the police put some pressure on him, he immediately shifts and throws Miller under the bus. He basically says that in all three robberies, that they were Miller's idea. That basically Miller said he was broke and wanted Durbin to drop him off near a place that he could rob. Durbin says that he saw the gun and the different masks that were used, and he even took enough of the money to cover his expenses for driving Miller around. Now, there's a lot more information in these reports regarding the investigation, but relevant to our investigation into Bill's murder is really just the M.O. in these robberies. Miller, known to wear a dark ball cap, would case the target of his robberies with Durbin and then have Durbin park away from the scene. He would approach on foot and use a revolver to force the clerks to give him money and then flee on foot. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'll be covering more on these other three cases in another episode. But for the time being, I want to shift gears here for a minute. I want to rewind all the way back to the beginning of this season, when we were covering Bill's victimology. At that point, we had a critical gap in the timeline between when Danny Hartley left the station, sometime between 7.30 and 8 p.m., and the moment the nose sales began at 8.06 p.m. Up until now... We've had no way of knowing what Bill was doing or thinking during that time. The investigative reports noted that there was a phone number found written on a piece of paper in Bill's pocket. The note said Michelle and had a phone number. During our holiday break, Michelle reached out to me. And this is what she had to say. So, Michelle, can you can you tell us a little bit about who you are, how you're connected to the players in this case, and how you knew Bill Little? Yeah, my name is Michelle Doherty, hyphenated with Simmons. Um, I met Bill through my cousin, which is Danny Hartley, and it's Smith now. And we met, actually, we met sometime a few months before my 16th birthday. And at the time that everything was going on, um, I was 16 when Bill got killed. So you had just known him for just a few months? Yeah, I just knew him for a few months before my 16th birthday. I met him through my cousin, Danny, and then he came to my sweet 16th birthday party. And after, you know, 30 days after that, it was Easter and 
I got the news that he got killed. Okay. Um, so did you guys, were you guys just friends or did you date or anything? We were just friends. Um, he did give me my sweet 16th first kiss, um, that I will never for, I will never forget. But, um, other than that, we were just like friends, nothing more. Oh, so, so you, did you know, in the, in the, the little bit of time that you got to know him, did you, do you feel like you knew him pretty well? Yeah, I knew him pretty well. Um, in the few times that, you know, he came over with my cousin Danny, we, my mom and my stepdad will let me go with him and my cousin, you know, for a cruise or a drive around town. So my mom and my stepdad also felt safe with him. Okay. What can you tell me about him? What was his personality like and in, in your experiences with him? Um, his personality was great. He had an awesome personality. He always made people laugh. He always joked around with you. He always listened to his favorite song, Tesla, um, Signs. Um, we jam out to that. He got me hooked on root beer. So I still drink root beer to this day. <laughs> so he was a lot of fun. That, that seems to be what everybody tells me, that he was he was funny and he was just a lot of fun to be around. Yeah, he was. He was a, a blast to be around. Now, you, we're going to get to the night of, of Bill's murder, but did you guys talk on the phone much? Because he, he had your phone number, right? Yeah, he um, he had my phone number because he knew that my cousin came to where we were living at that point in time in the trailer court because we lived in a trailer court. So um, I gave him our home phone number so that way if he needed to get a hold of my cousin, he could, and he could call me. Did he ever call and just chat with you, or was it always just looking for Danny? He was just looking for Danny. You know, he wasn't. We talked, but other than that, it was mostly that he was looking for Danny on if he was at our house. Gotcha. It's funny just thinking back to then because it's such a different world without cell phones. The uh, the, right. the network you had to have to find anyone. Yeah, it was rough because I'm, you know, only one way that you could really talk to anybody is a landline because there wasn't cell phones back then. Right. And that was even before pagers got popular. Yep, it was before that, too. Because mm-hmm. I don't think the pagers didn't get popular until, like, late 92 or 93, or it could have been later than that. I had my very cool pager when in, uh, like, 1996, I think. So they might have been yeah. popular a little bit before that. But I, I remember my senior year of high school, I had a pager, and I thought I was pretty cool. Yeah, I did, too. When I had my first pager, I thought I was the bomb with it <laughs> right so michelle i, I want to i want to jump ahead to the night of bill's murder um you know it's kind of the reason we we connected and started talking was you reached out to me to give me some information you know a big part of our investigative process the first and really yeah. most important part is to study victimology to uh, to try to have an understanding of the of a victim's risk factors their state of mind at the time that that you know the the violent incident happened and and to know what they were doing and you know we have the gap between when Danny left which it was somewhere between seven and eight o'clock that night it it just depends it sounds like it's probably between seven thirty and and seven forty five ish around there which was just minutes before Bill was right. killed right from then till he was killed. In, in that period of time is just a, a black hole for us. We we've never known what was going on then. But you reached out to me to let me know that you you do have some information that can start to fill in that gap. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, he 
He called me, I would say, around like 8 o'clock. And he was asking me if Danny was at our house. And I said, no, why, what's up? He said, well, I need him to come back here. And I said, what's going on? And he's like, I, it feels like there, you know, feels like something's going to happen. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, hold on a minute. So he put the phone down and I could hear him with the cash register. I could hear people, you know, talking, but I don't know. I don't know what they were talking about, but I could just hear voices in this um, store where he was working at. Well, then he got back on the phone and he's like, if you can get a, try to get a hold of Danny, I need him to come here. It's very important. I feel like something's going to happen. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, when we went on and on about it and he's like, I just need him to come here. And I said, okay, I'll try and do my best and get a hold of him, but I don't know how I can. Um, then he was, he was like, well, you know, just do your best. And he's like, I got to go. I was like, okay. So that was the end of that conversation. And he hung up. Wow. And so that, that had to have been, do you have any, any way of time stamping or you, you said you think it was around eight. Do you have any way of why you remember that it was eight o'clock? Only reason why I remember it was around eight o'clock is because I was listening to WBNQ that night in my room, and I heard them say that it was 7.55 around there, so that's the only way that I know that it was around 8 o'clock when he called. So in, in how long after that was it when you found out that he'd been killed? Um, how long? It was within 5 or 10 minutes. It seemed, it seemed like I just got off the phone with him before a detective um, called. and. They called and asked, you know, I answered the phone, and they're like, is this Michelle? And I said, yes. They're like, how old are you? And I said, I'm 16. They're like, well, is the parent around? And I said, yes, my mom is. So my mom got on the phone and gave him permission to talk to me since I was under the age. Okay, and then what did you what did you tell the detective? The detective, when he called, he asked me, he's like, how do you know Bill? And I said, I only met him through my cousin Danny. And he's like, well, I found his phone, your phone number in his pocket. So I guess my phone number was in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm saying, you know, check the phone records, because if my phone number was in his pocket, I'm sure it'll probably be on the phone record. Right. Also, yeah. And I don't think that's one of our big frustrations is we don't have any evidence that they actually checked the phone record to see if he called anyone else during that time right. as far as you remember not much time passed between the time you hung up no and when a detective called no. you no there wasn't that much time that passed because it seemed like i just got off the phone with him then the phone rang again and it was that detective i don't remember his name i'm sure that he probably did give me his name but i'm not for sure what his name was Hmm. did they did they ask you what you talked about he didn't ask me anything about what we talked about. He just asked how I knew Bill, and I explained to him on how I knew him, and he asked where I was. And I said, well, I've been at home all night. I said, you even asked my mom. I've been in my room all night. Mm-hmm. Did he even ask if Bill had called you? No, he did not ask that either. Oh, wow. And, and you didn't share that with him? I mean, obviously, you were 16, probably no. you were scared to death. <laughs> no, I was already scared and terrified as it is. At 16, so I didn't even, he didn't even ask that, so I didn't even suggest anything. 
did anyone well first of all did, did did he tell you at that point that bill had been killed yes he did tell me that bill was shot and killed oh so so you found out over the phone from one of the officers on the scene yes yes i did that's how i found out within a few minutes after i hung up with that detective my cousin came walking in the door and was crying and telling me that bill was gone god what an awful night yeah it was it was horrible. Did did any detectives or anyone from Bloomington Police Department ever reach back out to you after that night to talk to you about that phone conversation? No, they have not. This is just another glaring example of the ineptitude of the original investigating officers. There was never any focus on Bill's victimology and critical leads were ignored due to tunnel vision. Crow appears to have been locked into Gutierrez's description, which really ended up being the mistake that resulted in an innocent man being convicted. Our investigation continues next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. And we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.